I got a question for you right off the bat. Get your hands ready. How many of you have used the word dissipation in the last week? Yeah, me neither. Right? Okay, back here, but that doesn't count. Well, it counts, but it's not the same. In fact, I had to look it up. I'm not sure I had ever said the word dissipation until a couple of weeks ago. I had read it because I've read through the New Testament, and I had probably just kind of picked it up on context, what it meant. But I was really glad that I took the time a couple of weeks ago in Luke 21, as I was going through the Banding Together reading plan, I was really glad that I looked it up. And uh, it was a reminder to me that God's Word is living and active, and it's alive. It's not static. It's active. It's active in our lives. And I love it when I'm just kind of reading along, not prepping for a sermon, just sort of doing my daily routine, and God gives me something, and I know, oh, that's going to be perfect for this sermon that's coming up. So if you have a Bible or you want to grab one of ours, this isn't our main text today, but it definitely sets the stage for what we're talking about today. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 21, I'll have this on the screen. And I want to read this verse to you and then talk just a little bit about it because uh, Jesus is warning his disciples. He says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. That day being the day when heaven and earth pass away in the final judgment. And so I was like, well, I kind of know what it means just based on context, but I'm going to go ahead and look it up because it's not a word I'm familiar with. And it means to be dispersed or diluted, to be dissipated. Dissipation would also mean to be wasteful, to be intemperate, or to be self-indulgent. So it kind of goes along with the drunkenness side of things, but I think there's a deeper level to it uh, when you throw in the anxieties of life. There's this idea that when we're sort of dissipated and dispersed, we're sort of fragmented. And these are things that would weigh our hearts down, to be dispersed, dissipated, fragmented by all of these cares and concerns, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And so it's a warning that I believe we really need as the church. We need to heed in our current culture. And it's not just talking about stuff or materialism. It's also talking about our activities and our commitments. Are our hearts weighed down with the dispersion of, of all the things that are vying for our attention? Or are we able to focus? Are our hearts weighed down with all the things that society tells us we need to have and we need to do and we need to have our kids doing and all of these pressures that come to us and they add to those anxieties of life. Christian speaker and author Alan Fadling has said the drive to possess is an engine for hurry. The drive to possess, whether it's a thing or to possess a lifestyle or to possess an opinion by others about you, the drive to possess is an engine for hurry. What do engines do? They add power. They add acceleration. That This drive to possess adds or accelerates or produces hurry in our lives. And so it's a question that goes with this statement that goes with this warning from our Savior, what do you want and how hard are you willing to work for it? 
Do you want a nicer car, a bigger house, newer technology, nicer or more vacations? Maybe you're in retirement and you're thinking about things and you might ask the question, how much of my working life am I willing to trade for those things? If you're working right now, you might ask, how many hours am I willing to work for to trade for that thing? You want the newest iPhone and it costs, I don't even know anymore, $1,200? You make 20 bucks an hour. Are you willing to work for 60 hours to have that thing? And what will that add to your life? What will it subtract from your life? I'm not against enjoying possessions and experiences, and I don't think Jesus was either. But I wonder, do we really ask that question or the question behind the question? Do we really even enjoy those things that we were driven to possess? And if we do enjoy them, why do we enjoy them? What do they do for us? And how long do we enjoy them before we want something else? Do we realize how much money, how many trillions of dollars are spent to elicit nonstop desire, nonstop wanting more? And do we really count the cost, not just the dollars, but the time involved, the hurry that these things will add to our lives? Inherent in Jesus' question is this reality that there is a lot to be said for intentional simplicity, intentionally choosing simplicity, choosing less over more in key areas of our lives. As we continue our series this morning, The Pace of Grace, we're almost done this week and next week, and then we'll be on to a new series that I'm already getting excited about. But our focus this series has been learning to walk with Jesus in a world addicted to hurry, You could say a world addicted to more, and it's the pursuit of the more that leads to much of the hurry in our lives. That we live in a culture, and maybe not you, maybe it's the person beside you or the person behind you, is addicted to hurry. Go, go, go. Do more. And it's a progressive series, um, so if you missed a message, it would be really good to kind of make sure you catch up. If you're watching online, we're so glad that you're watching online, but if you're just joining us for the first time, you may want to go back and catch the other four messages. These last couple of weeks, we've been focusing on key spiritual disciplines that we can observe in the life of Jesus as we read the Gospels in the teachings of Christ, um, that he kept these practices and that they helped him to be a three-mile-an-hour God, a God who was never in a hurry, who was ultimately always distractible. He was never rattled. He never, oh, we're late, we're running behind, we got to hurry up. He was always on purpose and intentional with his time. And so we looked at silence and solitude a couple weeks ago, this idea that without solitude, it's virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. Last week, we looked at the Sabbath and Sabbath keeping, and we focused on Jesus' words that man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It was a gift that God gave to his people as he led them out of slavery, out of being human machines for the empire of Egypt, he gave them the gift of the Sabbath, the gift of rest. And then later he commands them to keep this gift. It's supposed to be like a birthday every week, something you look forward to, something you plan towards, something you're excited about, not a list of rules and regulations that you have to keep, which is what it had become during Jesus' time. 
but an opportunity to engage in worship, which is what we were created to do, to engage in rest and to offer a little bit of resistance to the nature of Egypt in the world that says, do more, do more, do more. And so today we're going to focus on the next one. We're going to focus on simplicity. And I love that even our worship service, the opening worship, was intentionally simple. Michael shared that that was intentional, an acoustic set, just a couple of extra voices. There was simplicity in worship, but it's a key illustration that simplicity does not mean insignificance. There was, I was moved in the worship, and I think perhaps because of the change, because of the shift, because of the simplicity of worship, I was able to engage in it in a different way. And we see simplicity as a key spiritual discipline of Jesus. Did you notice that two of the songs had the same line in it? And I asked Michael if that was intentional. He said, no, the Holy Spirit gets the credit for all of that one. But in the opening set, we sang a song that said, whom the sun sets free, he is free indeed. I am a child of God. Yes, I am. And then after communion, after celebrating the blood and the bread and celebrating our redemption in Christ, we said, whom the sun sets free, he is free indeed. Again, Jesus wants us to have freedom, and there is freedom in simplicity. And from what we can tell, Jesus lived a very simple life. He had few possessions, no permanent residence, at least during his earthly ministry that we read about in the, in the Gospels. He had no means of transportation. He didn't have a horse or a carriage. He didn't have one of those little things that the slaves had to carry him around on. Like, he had a very simple life. He walked everywhere he went. He had no evidence of financial security in his life. And there's significant evidence that he intentionally chose this, that he chose this simple life, that he chose this nomadic lifestyle, that he embraced it, that he had wealthy patrons that were funding his ministry, so much so that one of the disciples had to sort of be a treasurer. Might not have picked the best one, but obviously he didn't make any mistakes. He knew what he was doing. Judas helped himself to some of the money. There was enough that Judas could help himself and people might not notice. So there was resources. And yet those resources were not used by Jesus to provide transportation or a nice place uh, to live or any of these other things. And so it's interesting to consider that he chose a simple life. But we don't just have to speculate. He taught on this all the time. He taught about money and about possessions and about our relationship with money and our relationship with possessions all the time. As many as a third or more of his teachings can be linked to money and possessions. And there is a lengthy session, section that we're going to look at today from Luke chapter 12. So you're already in Luke 21. You just have to back up to Luke chapter 12. But while you get there, I want to read a quote to you from John Mark Comer in the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He makes this point, and it's a really good point. He says, in Jesus' life and teaching, we see the very same tension that runs all the way through the library of Scripture. On the one hand, the world and everything in it are very good, and they're meant to be enjoyed and shared with those in need. On the other hand, too much wealth is dangerous. It has the potential to turn our hearts away from God. When that happens, our greedy, off-kilter hearts wreak havoc 
not only on our own lives, sabotaging our own happiness, but more importantly, on the lives of others, widening the gap between rich and poor because our resources are for us to get what we want instead of for us to share with those who are in need. And so Jesus speaks a lot about money, and he speaks a lot about money and possessions in Luke chapter 12. So we're going to walk through this lengthy passage of teaching. It's clearly not saying all money is bad or those who have money are bad. It's dangerous. And I have often said that more money will make you more of what you already were before you had more money, right? So if you were selfish and you get more money, you'll be selfish with your more money. If you were generous when you didn't have very much money and you get more money, you'll probably be generous with it. It's a magnifier or an amplifier. It's morally neutral. And Jesus says some similar things or kind of reinforces that as he walks through Luke chapter 12. And so this passage begins with this question, as it often did. And Jesus uses this question as sort of a teachable moment to speak to his disciples and to those gathered around him about money and about possession. So in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12, someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? Now, I always want to read that like, Man, who appointed me judge, right? I want to kind of bring my own, but I think Jesus probably didn't say it that way. He probably said, Man, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? And then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. His response gives insight into the context. He understands that the question was prompted by greed on the person, on the part of the person who asked it. Now, for the most part, in the biblical context, what we see is this pattern where Wealth was transferred from one generation to the next, and it was transferred to the sons, and the first son would get a double portion of that. The eldest would get a double portion. So the speculation would be that this was a second or third or fourth, and he's saying, tell that one that got the double portion to give me a share, a fair share, an equal portion. And Jesus doesn't really speak to that. He just asks the question, who appointed me judge between you and your brother or brothers? And then he gives the warning. The warning is, watch out against all kinds of greed. Be on your guard, he says. He says, look for it. Expect it. It's coming. It will work its way in. It will come in through the back door. It will come in through that window that you left cracked just to get a little bit of fresh air. It will work its way into your life. So watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Now, greed is the problem. Not money, not possessions. It's greed. Greed is covetousness. It's a desire for more and more and more. Because greed is never fully and finally satisfied. If you're greedy and you get more, you will want more. If you're content and you get more, you will be content with more. You will probably be generous with more. But if you're greedy and you get more, and so that's why Jesus is saying, watch out for all kinds of greed. It's needing more than you want, and it's sneaky, and it's subversive. Watch out even for good kinds of greed, good kinds of greed, because society will tell you, culture will tell you, there's good kinds of greed that motivate you to work hard and to accomplish and to accumulate, and these are not bad things in and of themselves, but if there's greed involved, it becomes a bad thing, a thing that Jesus 
would warn against. And then he tells the story in verses 16 through 21, which we're not going to look at in detail, but I would encourage you to just kind of pick this one apart at some point this week and get out a good study Bible and a commentary and, and dig into this because it's an illustration. He tells the story to illustrate his point. And the main point is that you have this rich fool who has a really great harvest, so big that his barns can't hold it. So he says, oh, let's just bulldoze all those barns and let's build bigger barns and then we'll have everything we need for a long, long time. Instead of, well, let's use this abundance to give to others. And he says, this is what it's going to be like for anyone who is not rich toward God. And then he sort of brings the teachable moment. Then in verse 22, if you want to jump down to that, he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. He's saying, don't worry about it. Don't worry about your life. He had earlier said, in verse 15, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Don't Worry about accumulating an abundance of possessions because life is more than that, particularly eternal life. And so if you put this on a continuum and you say eternity past and eternity present, your life is going into eternity future. And he's saying if you just focus on this little tiny sliver of it and getting as much as you can and greed enters into the mix, it impacts eternity. He's saying your life is so much more than that. And he's drawing a connection between money or greed and anxiety. That the greedier you are and the more you have, the more anxious you are to get more and the more anxious you are to protect and preserve what you have. And he's making this powerful point that life is so much more, it's so much greater than food and clothes. These are necessities. And so if life is more than just the necessities, then by extension, it's going to be more than everything else. And he gives a couple of examples in verses 24 through 28. The birds, uh, he uses them to, to they, don't, they don't labor, they just fly around and there's food and their heavenly father takes care of them. And the lilies don't do anything to make themselves beautiful and yet God makes them beautiful and they're clothed even better than Solomon in all his splendor. And he uses this kind of if-then statement and he's using that to extend it beyond those basic needs of food and clothing to say if those things are taken care of by your heavenly father everything you need is taken care of by your heavenly father if we're not supposed to worry about food and clothes then we certainly aren't supposed to worry about getting the latest iphone or a bigger house or a nicer newer car that these things will dissipate us they will fragment us we will be focused on the wrong things and not focused on the right things and our hearts will become weighed down by the anxieties of life especially if these other things are beyond our current means. And now we have to scheme. How do I get that? How could I pick up an extra job? Could I do this? Could I make this move? Or maybe even something improper would come to mind. Maybe we go into debt or we overwork or we take a job or a promotion that we don't want for a company whose mission we don't believe in in order to get these things and to have these possessions or we become more selfish with what we have and we say well I could have that if I stopped giving here I could afford that if I was not as generous with my family or with people that I know who are in need and and so greed is what got this whole thing started and Jesus is warning against that 
And he kind of brings this, you know, to another level at the end of those examples in verses 29 through 31. This is what we're going to look at next. He says, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. Second time he said that. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Don't you set your heart on those things. Don't set your heart, even on the basic necessities. Set your heart on God. He knows he's going to take care of you for eternity. Even if the next few years or decades aren't great, eternity is going to be a lot longer than that, and it's going to be way, way better than that. He's saying seek that kingdom first. Seek him first. And he's telling us so much falls into place when we get these priorities right. And as I was preparing this message, a profoundly annoying quote from Tim Keller came to mind. And because I love you so much, I want to share it with you, okay? Are you ready? Tim Keller makes this point, and it's such a good point. He says, for most of us, God hasn't become our happiness. We, therefore, pray to procure things for our happiness and not to know him better. I still remember the first time I heard that quote. It was a punch in the gut because that very morning I had been praying for some things. And now that quote, when I hear it, when it comes to mind, it's more like a tap on the shoulder, like, hey, don't forget. I feel like God has increasingly become my happiness. And that is so much better than looking for things to be your happiness because those things aren't your happiness for very long. But God never fails. And there's so much available to us in him. And think about the irony that we're asking God to give us things to make us happy instead of him being our happiness. And he's saying, I, I can't give you that because it's going to lead you farther from me. And another Tim Keller quote that's not on a slide, but it just came to mind is that God will only give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. He will only give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. But because we don't, he withholds things from us that will lead our hearts astray. He withholds things from us sometimes that will cause us to move away from him. And if instead we would choose to pray, God, make me and you enough. Make you my happiness. Help my heart to desire you and not these other things. Then we would be so much better off. Now, verse 32 and 34 bring a close to this lengthy teaching section, and I love the way Jesus chooses to close, close this lengthy teaching section. He says, do not be afraid, little flock. That's the third time, if you're counting, that he's told us not to be afraid in response to or in regards to money and possessions. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will never wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your hearts will be also. He just told them to seek the kingdom of God. And now he tells them it's God's good pleasure to give it to you. He's he wants you to seek it because he wants to give it to you. It's not like, oh, changed my mind. I think I'm going to keep the kingdom. 
You keep seeking it, but I'm going to keep it. No, he's like, oh, I was so glad you want the kingdom. Here, let me give you some. Let me give you the kingdom. And the kingdom is not a political entity. The kingdom is an order of authority. The kingdom is God's rule and reign in our lives. And so as we seek God's rule and reign in our lives, he's eager to give it to us. And it's the best thing for us. And so that final statement, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The question is, are our hearts light and free in the kingdom of heaven? Or are they weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life here on earth? And I wonder if it breaks God's heart that we don't seem to want the kingdom sometimes. That we want the stuff. We want the thing. We want the car, the house, the phone, whatever it is, whatever the thing is. The lifestyle. We want people to look at us a certain way. And he's saying, oh, but that just pales in comparison to the kingdom. Are you sure you don't want the kingdom? You're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I want the phone. I wonder if that breaks God's heart when we don't seem to want the kingdom. And I wonder what could we possess that could possibly surpass the kingdom of God, his rule and reign in our lives. And so all of that brings us to simplicity. And you might be wondering, were we ever going to get to that point? Yes, we're there. And I love how... Comer, in his book, he just kind of turns the corner here and he says, you know, here's a question. What if Jesus was right? <laughs> Have you ever wondered that? Like as you're reading the Gospels, you think, man, that sounds a little wild. That sounds a little crazy. That's not what I hear on CNBC or that's not what I hear on the financial or, you know, on Fox News, whatever. It sounds a little different than what culture is telling me. And he's saying, what if Jesus was right? What if Jesus was right in Luke chapter 12? All of it. What if simplicity really is the best way to avoid greed. Simplicity would be the opposite of greed. Greed wants more and more and more. Simplicity intentionally chooses less over more. Less stuff, less activities, etc. Now, interestingly enough, culture has kind of turned simplicity into a modern designer style. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about simplicity as a spiritual discipline. It's also not poverty or destitution. And it's not just endless organization. Sometimes simplicity gets decided. If I have everything in a similar colored bucket and everything, you know, has a lid and I could go and spend several thousand dollars on a closet system and on totes and I would, it would be simple. Well, it would be clean and organized, but that's not necessarily the same as simplicity. And it's not poverty or destitution, but it's important to remember that poor people don't call it simple living. They just call it living, Right? Because it's easy to choose less over more when you have no ability to have more. But when you have the means to have more and you choose simplicity over complexity, when you choose less, when you choose contentment, there is a joy that can come with that. And I don't know that I've ever talked to somebody who's been on a mission trip to an impoverished part of the world that hasn't commented on the fact that they have nothing and yet they have so much joy. Like, I remember when we went to Nicaragua, and we took used tennis balls, because one of the people on the trip worked at a health club, and once tennis balls have been used so many times, they're not going to be good anymore. And so we took bags of used tennis balls, and we gave kids used tennis balls, and it was like the best thing in the world. And there was so much joy over something that would have been thrown away in America. Like, they had nothing except joy. And I've never heard somebody that went on a mission trip to an impoverished area that hasn't commented on that. And it makes you wonder, maybe Jesus was right. 
Maybe more stuff isn't the answer. Maybe more possessions aren't the answer. Maybe it's the simplicity that is the answer. Now, simplicity is similar to minimalism, but still, it's, it's not an end in itself. Minimalism feels more like an end in itself. I'm going to get rid of stuff for the, for the means of getting rid of stuff. And, and we have to remember, just like any other spiritual discipline, it's, it's not an end in itself. It's only helpful as a means to an end. And so as you think about and pray about, and I hope you'll do this, what would simplicity look like for me? Don't get focused on, I have to do this and this and this, but what is distracting me from God? What is taking my heart away from Him? How could I develop or cultivate a deeper relationship with God through simplicity? And then you choose those things. And I've got some ideas, and I'll share those with you in just a second. But the purpose is to get closer, to be more focused on God, to be more available to Him and to His purposes for our lives. And so, yes, simplicity might involve freeing up resources or time or energy to be available for His mission in our lives. That's the goal. The end is a closer walk with Him, not simplicity for the sake of simplicity or minimalism for the sake of minimalism. And so I've got some ideas as we kind of come down the home stretch here for how to cultivate simplicity in your life. You might want to write a few of these down. What can you do to cultivate simplicity in your life? Remember, do what you can until you can do what you couldn't. That's the goal there. A discipline is something that we can do now that will eventually enable us to do something we can't do now. And so as you think about this, the ways to cultivate simplicity in your life, the first one would be pray. Pray more. Pray a lot more. Like before you buy something, pray about it. Before you say yes to something, to an obligation, an opportunity, an invitation, pray about it. and Say, God, do you want me to do this? Would Jesus do this? Would Jesus buy this? Or would he hold on to and use what he has? Here's a couple others, maybe a little bit more practical, or some prompts for prayer. First would be consider the true cost of things. The true cost of things, not just the price tag, but how much time does that represent? You know, do the math. Know your hourly wage. And so I really want to trade, especially if it's something you're signing up to for a long time. Do I want to trade that many hours per week or per month for that thing? And how much hurry is that going to add to my life? The next one would be to live on a budget, a budget that has margin, never impulse buy. These are ways that you can bring simplicity into your life. Set a 24-hour minimum clock on any purchase over a certain threshold so that you're not impulse buying something, that you have a conversation with somebody, a spouse, an accountability partner, or something to say, you know, I think I want this thing, but I'm going to push pause. If it's a good deal today, it'll be a good deal tomorrow, and if it goes away, Maybe that's a sign. I don't know. I'm not going to say. Another one would be to share or rent or borrow as often as you can. Like whenever you can share something with somebody else or rent something. Pastor Zach shared from Acts chapter 2. Later in Acts chapter 2, we're told that the early believers had everything in common. They sold what they had in order to meet the needs of others. They shared things. They, They... they did this, and as I was, I was on a long road trip in the last couple of weeks, and I was driving down the interstate, you know, for a whole day on the way out and on the way back to, doesn't matter why, but um, I noticed all these trucks, like big, huge trucks, right? They got one person in them, nothing in the bed, not pulling anything. 
And I just casually observed that about 80-90% of the trucks didn't need to be trucks, right? They could have been like little passenger cars, one person, no stuff. And I thought, man, you know, like, if you're a car truck dealer, I'm sorry. But like, most of those people didn't need a truck most of the time. Maybe four or five times a year, they actually use a truck as a truck. Maybe they could borrow or rent a truck or something along those lines. It was just a, an idea that came to mind as I was observing all these trucks with empty beds and one person. Share, rent, borrow whenever you can. Next one, give stuff away, like a lot. Give a lot of stuff away. You'll find that it is truly more blessed to give than to receive. There is joy in seeing other people use something that you aren't really using anymore that they really need, have a need in their life, or to take stuff down to the Union Gospel Mission or to one of the other Christ-centered ministries in our community that are trying to help those who are really in need. And you give stuff away, even really good stuff, like nice stuff. Like so often, I'm like, yeah, I'm not really using that anymore. That's not very nice. I never really liked the way that fit or whatever. I'll give that away. But what if we give away something that we kind of do like, a nicer thing? It's an opportunity to in simplicity and to find that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Cultivate a deep appreciation for nature and for simple pleasures in your life. Like, I don't know if you noticed this, but nature is almost free. You might need to or want to pay, you know, whatever it is, $36 for a parks pass for a whole year, and you can use that as much as you want, but you don't even have to do that. Like, there's places here in town. I love the outdoor campus. It's two right turns on my way home, and whenever I can and it's nice and the paths aren't iced over, I love to just go take a lap there, and I appreciate nature. I have a deep appreciation for nature. It costs me nothing, and if we can cultivate a deep appreciation for things that cost us nothing, that will increase simplicity in our lives. And then just simply do less. Even do nothing sometimes. <laughs> like, there can be joy in not doing. And so this might involve fewer activities, fewer commitments, but if you enjoy the things that you are doing more, then you're not dissipated. You're not spread thin. You're not so busy moving from one thing to the next or shuttling our kids from one thing to the next that they can't enjoy any of the things that they're doing very much. Richard Foster in Celebration of Discipline, I love this statement. We're going to kind of close with this statement and move to our bottom line. He says, lead a cheerful, happy revolt against the spirit of materialism. Don't you love that? It's not this tallow-faced, grudging revolt against the spirit of materialism because Pastor Mark said so or because Jesus seems to say so. It's a cheerful, happy revolt. It's like, yeah, the whole world is going crazy to get this stuff. We don't need this stuff. We got Jesus got the world he created. We have each other. We have fellowship. We have joy. Lead a cheerful, happy revolt against the spirit of materialism. Materialism has a spirit. It's alive and well in our day. But we don't have to go with that. We can choose simplicity and we can choose to be happy in the midst of it. And so our bottom line today is actually a question it's a question that we should ask ourselves all the time, but it's a question that will really set us up for success in this subject of simplicity. And that question is this, what would Jesus do if he were me? Ask the question, whether you do it or not, 
the question will be helpful. But as you ask that question and you continue to ask that question, you ask that question in every area of your life, you ask that question before a purchase or before a commitment or before accepting an invitation, as you ask that question and you choose to do what Jesus would do if he were you, that's a win-win. That's a win-win. So get used to asking that question. Put it somewhere that you'll see it on a regular basis. Put it somewhere, maybe in a reminder in your phone or on a sticky note on your mirror. Say, what would Jesus do if he were me? And ask that question throughout the day. I guarantee you, your life will start to look more like Jesus if you will ask that question and then do what comes to mind as you pray. Because over and over, I think we'll find that it will be the simpler thing, that it will be the thing that involves the simple pleasure, that it will be the thing that is generous or surrendered to God. It will be the thing that is open to his mission in our lives. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are grateful. Grateful that you chose to lead a simple life and you modeled this for us. Grateful that you invite us to the joy of simplicity. This might be difficult for some of us. This might be a foreign concept. Or maybe one we're just not that excited about. So help us to trust you. Help us to trust that this is for our good, that there's no ulterior motive, that you just want us to live freely and happily with you. You don't want our hearts dissipated and weighed down by the anxieties of life. We want our hearts full and focused on the kingdom of God, receiving your goodness and grace and being content with that, being willing to share with others as they have need and we have abundance. And so, Lord, we thank you that you were so generous with us, that you laid down your very life for us, that you made a way for us to come back to the Father through you. And so, Lord, we celebrate your generosity to us, and we ask you to help us to respond in faith to your teaching to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.